gotten so bad. There seems to be like three or four archetypes you can be. You can be like, I'm non-binary and I have blue hair and have a shaved head and this is the thing that I'm putting my camp in. Or you can be, I'm a right-wing traditional Catholic monarchist wants to be a serf. Or I'm like, I think another one that's kind of an in-between is like, I'm a natural granola mom hippie. It's, I think that as like, that's a whole other subculture. So I think like people really took for granted what we accomplished in second wave feminism and thought, you know, women can be whatever they want to be and you can enter the workforce or you can not, or you can stay home or this is like settled ground, but Gen Zs don't see it that way. Welcome to the New Flesh Podcast, the podcast you deserve. My name is Ricky Orpike and joining me once again is Mr. Jonathan Astro. John, I've been sick, but I'm back. You can probably tell from my voice. How are you? Oh, I wasn't going to ask. I don't comment on people's... Uh immutable characteristics their appearance or anything I could get you in a lot of trouble these days so true yeah you you, you could infer that i sound like a man with this deep voice <laughs> yeah you do you do uh that's a good intro uh because these are the issues that are going to come up today we we have uh hannah borelli uh, the other half of red femme uh with us today i'm i'm pumped i am too their their podcast is killing it people are loving it and we're loving it Jen mentioned, she said the words, new, I can't do the accent. She said, new flesh podcast. Really? On, on her, on her show? On the podcast. Oh, wow. Northern, like English, you know, sort of English accent. Mm. Yeah. I can't do said that. something like, I mentioned, I mentioned this on the, on the new flesh podcast and I went, oh, do tell. Mm. Mm. So there you go. You're getting shout outs. You're getting shout outs. Mm. Well, let's hope we can get some more, uh, on with the show. Yes, well, we always tell you the truth here at the New Flesh Podcast, and the truth is that we need your help. We need you to leave us a rating or review wherever you listen to the show. We're also on YouTube, so please subscribe to our YouTube channel and leave a comment about a show you like there. Word of mouth is also a very powerful tool, so please tell all of your friends. And finally, to our Uber fans, if you love what we do, you can send us a little cash via the Buy Me A Coffee platform. Any donation here is very much appreciated, and I do love my coffee. Now, on with the show. Anna Borelli is a Marxist and feminist. She's the editor of On the Woman Question and the co-host of the Ascendant Red Femme podcast alongside Dr. Jen Isaacson. Hannah, welcome to The New Flesh. Hello. Thank you for having me. So, Hannah, uh, one of your recent episodes, you, you, this, this is going to come out of nowhere, but uh, there's a lot of stuff from your, your show that I want to talk about. So you mentioned burlesque recently, uh, randomly, and your thoughts on this were totally on point. Can you tell us what you think of burlesque and the burlesque moment that we had a, a little while back? I'm not sure what it was like in Australia, but I remember it was such a thing in like, when was it? Like 2015, 2014? Mm. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, it was like burlesque was the queer thing. And it was obviously that wonderful Foucauldian thing of, oh, is it objectification? But actually at the site where you're the most oppressed, that's where you have the most freedom to be expressive about your oppression. So it's deconstructive and it's black and white at the same time. And ooh, how interesting. And yeah, it was like women who wouldn't necessarily be particularly high on the heterosexual hierarchy, we'll put it that way, who were getting really, really into this. And I think it was like a bit of like, I am daring you to say that I'm actually not the kind of woman that you would expect to be a stripper, basically. And it, <laughs> <laughs> I want you to 
like good luck like trying to point that out and yeah it was such a moment in time and i think what happened why they let it go is that rupaul's drag race happened and became a huge thing so all of those really heterosexual women who identify as bisexual who want to be queer moved from burlesque to drag and then they got really into like drag hobbyism that but do they do they do drag though because 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 if you were into if you were uh into burlesque you know because aren't isn't drag more well i guess i'm being hegemonic here thinking that drag queens is even then men are in charge you know it's the drag queens and the drag kings are just yeah well yeah no one i mean drag kings are like a very small i think it was just a thing because drag queens were a thing and maybe in the 1970s when cross-dressing was really subversive this was like a thing people were doing but no a lot of like the rupaul's drag race fandom are like straight women or bisexual women who are really really into it and it's like a different kind of weird male worship and it's so bizarre because these two groups of people couldn't be any more different. You have like straight women who are like librarians and school teachers and have 2.5 kids or whatever. And then you have like gay men and not just like gay men who work at the bank, but like gay men who's their the nightlife is their whole life and they're really crude and they're really like hypersexual and like the jokes. It's also very weird that it's a woke thing because often the joke is, jokes are quite like racist and like subversive. And I just think it's this, yeah, this queer theory thing of, of being obsessed with like, you take an archetype, you exaggerate it to its, like the theory of it is you take an archetype, you exaggerate it to its most extreme, to its logical conclusion. And then we can all go, Ooh, wow, look at all the contradictions and isn't it interesting or whatever. Um, so I think a lot of it got taken up by rupaul's drag race and these are the moms that are now taking their kids to like drag queen story hour um it's fascinating well i have to drive through an area uh in i don't know if you've ever been to sydney but there's a uh the epicenter of all this sort of jazz is um uh oh goodness me uh newtown newtown yeah newtown and so newtown (laughs) <laughs> and uh and i thought about this because there's there's a, there's a lots of sort of you know pride and drag stuff all around and then like on on a huge billboard on the side of a pub is like a, a, a overweight male well it's a drag queen i'm not going to say male i don't know what the rules are with that it's a drag queen and um and then the title says it's advertising like a, a trivia night or something and it says the big fact hunt on it Right, and so you've got to say it fast, Ricky. Yeah, the, the big fact hunt. Yeah, the big fact hunt. Yeah, yeah, you get it. I think you get the picture, right? Ah, yeah, yeah. And so I looked at that, and I was just like, "What is this movement about? And why are so many people okay <laughs> with this? Like, this is clearly that's dreadful. It's a dreadful thing to say in public, you know? Hannah, what's going on here?" Well, I think if you were to talk to a queer theorist, like someone who really believes it, and I remember I actually watched an interview with a drag queen who's quite popular, who was on RuPaul's Drag Race. And from my understanding, these are men who don't claim to be women, like actually, like they're not the same as like a man saying that he's transgender. And he was just saying, and he does this kind of drag that's 
it's like almost like a Barbie and he has his face painted in such a way that he looks almost like a doll. And it's very kind of like, is it real? Isn't it real? And he was like, oh, it's about making a mockery of femininity, like dialing it up to 100 so people can look at the contradictions. Like that's like the queer theory kind of line or a lot of this Foucauldian stuff is that in it's something in its most kind of extreme expression exposes that it's contradictory and then we can have a discussion about whatever. And that's all interesting and I think might have its place in like art criticism or something. But what ends up happening is that people don't look at it as a subversive whatever because they don't make a distinction between the parody of the thing and the thing itself. It just becomes the thing itself. So people think, oh, like this is femininity and this is what attract is what, what is attractive. And I remember after things moved from burlesque into into drag stuff, it was like popular for women to have like drag style makeup. I don't know if you remember this as men, but like 20, yeah, like 2015 to 2018, it was like really heavy makeup and it was like inspired by drag, like by makeup that is, men. Is, is, is that where brow drama came from? Yes. Do you remember that? The big... I remember that. Yeah. I always hated that. Yeah. No, it looks... Men don't like it either. Like, men think it's terrible. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that it's one of those things with a lot of this stuff where the it kind of... You can kind of see the theory of it in an art criticism, philosophical kind of way. But in the real world when it's played out, people just think that the the extreme parody of the thing is actually the thing itself. Um, so I think that's what happened. And there's no question that drag and the popularity of it, even though they're gay men who dress up to go to clubs and they're not claiming to be women, really kind of normalize like transgenderism later down the line. Um, and made it a bit difficult to question these things. And I remember RuPaul himself, he was he had a rule where he's like, I don't want basically males who've had like transgender medicine, quote unquote, or trans surgeries on my show, because that's like cheating. Like you're there's no transformation there. If you already look like a woman or have had facial feminization surgery, what's the point of being on my show? And he was canceled. <laughs> How dare you? You yeah. have to let trans women. Mm. Yeah, of course. How dare he? So, <laughs> and these things come from like, yeah, um, gay men in New York in the late 20th century who would do this kind of dress up and play amongst each other. And it really was because they were like in a very like genuinely marginalized position in many ways. Many of them were homeless as youth. Um, you know, it was kind of like a they had their own kind of subculture of like cross-dressing and nightlife and whatever. And then it became like mass produced and commercialized and marketed to straight people, which is obviously a bigger market and became like really normative. And now it's for kids and it's not like a weird, um, I think kind of the point of it is like, it's a weird kind of off-putting, oh, you're drunk and you're in a nightclub and is it a man or is it a woman? Like how weird. And now this is like for kids. I think mm. it's a really demonstrative example. The, the people that were into this sort of subculture when it was was new or, or when it was underground and subversive, I mean, do they look at this now and go, you know, what the fuck happened to to the thing I was into? You know, like now now that, that that's trying to be pushed on kids and straight people are getting into it. And I think about that. I think I feel that way about cinema. 
you know, mm. like the way it's all it's all just comic book movies now. You know, like I feel mm. maybe that's what they feel. They feel it's just been totally perverted and ruined, and you just got to get out. I think must. I think, and I think I have heard some gay men say that. Like, I think I heard a drag queen saying, "Like, why did like do, why do people expect drag queens to be nice? Like, we're like horrible, <laughs> like." <laughs> <laughs> Like we insult people on stage. That's like part Patty. of our home. Yes. Yeah. You know. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Mm. I think they they think they must feel that, but I think that's what's happening in culture is, you know, as things get more degraded and alienated and separated from the thing itself and commodified and like what you're saying in cinema. And everything's a remake, isn't it? Everything is like a remake of a remake yeah. of a remake. Like original mm. It's Ideas. nightmarish. Don't get John started. It's a nightmare. It's it is just <laughs> like a dizzying nightmare of of uh, of you know just AI produced horrible things. And and the, just one last thing, Ricky. It, the big thing, Hannah, is you got to get someone beloved and then humiliate them and have them just you know well, firstly old and decrepit. Then everyone humiliates them, and and that's the end of the story. Yep. Indiana Jones, basically. Well, at least just one of many. <laughs> like you take a beloved movie star, you put him in the movie. or All of the them. Movie. Any, yeah. yeah, just character or movie star. Have them be told by young, annoying people, uh, you know, that they drive the story and just, you know, sort of push them around and like, you know, make comments about them the whole time and stuff. I just can't even watch it. I don't even watch. I haven't watched films. Maybe it's my age and I've, films have always sucked as I've been alive. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That sounds correct. <laughs> yes. Films like I watch television. I remember I remember watching Breaking Bad when it came out, and mm. everyone was sharing the illegal streaming links amongst each other mm. because I don't think there's been anything good in the cinema in a very long time. Or you get kind of the opposite of that, which is like um, like Oscar bait, really like overwrought. Like it's the royals in the 16th yeah. century, and it's really like melodramatic and i it doesn't seem yeah like part to it either yeah or 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 sort of like an old american guy from the south who you know is is pitted with a black guy and they end up becoming friends and then they they all learn about humanity at the end you know Mm. but that's what i don't understand a lot about um i guess critical race theory some people might call it or whatever it is the kind of reified racial identity politics is it's it's also doing a very weird denial of racism because you'll watch something that's supposed to be taking place in the 1970s and it'll be a mixed race cast and you think oh no these people would have not liked each other like this would have been Mm. like there would have been a lot of racism here but now we're pretending that like there's no racism in history the the bbc are the worst at this they make these tv shows in the uk where it's it's you know it's kings and queens it's set you know 300 years ago but but the, the you know the queen is black and the, there's a few servants that are black but then you know like it's just you know mixed race everywhere and you're like hang on a minute like back in those days like there there were no people of color like not not in england and not in europe you know so yeah i mean i think the worst one was I'm Canadian, right? And there was this show that they, it was an internet series that they made into a television show, the CBC. So the Canadian version of the ABC or the BBC made into a television series and it was called Letter Kenny. And it was literally about a 
town in northern Ontario where people are like, oh yeah, they're over there. I'm gonna be do this and we do that, and yeah, we're, we're gonna go to the go to the park later, and we can't go down to the states because they don't have ketchup chips, so we're not going down there to that hockey game, whatever. Like it was like a it was a parody of like rural Canada and how Canadians speak, and they had northern Ontario, and they had a, the second season a mixed race cast in northern Ontario. Like part of what's funny about that show is that these people are so backwards compared to everywhere else in the country. And it's this weird kind of flattening of all social relations <laughs> where we like pretend racism doesn't exist. We pretend sexism doesn't exist. Some of the time, actually, that kind of works out a bit differently. But certainly racism, we pretend doesn't exist at all, which seems very counterintuitive. I mean, can you make films like 12 Years a Slave anymore or these kinds of films that are very honest about racism in the past? Or do we have no. to just... You, you, you can you can if you can find actual slaves because nowadays you need to be the thing to play the thing. That's so true. If, that if you're true. gonna if you're gonna be a gay character in a movie, you you better be gay in real life. You know, if you're disabled in the movie, you better be disabled in real life, or mm. you're getting cancelled. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. But if you're a man, you can say you're a woman, and you don't have to be a woman in real life. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> well, well, uh, well, Hannah, you, you mentioned Canada. And, and before we get any further, I, yeah. I want to know, what are you doing in England? Is, is Canada no, not good enough for you anymore? Uh, I have British parents and a British passport. So I just skipped over here within the last few years. And so did we just racially profile you or? I racially profile. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was terrible. Yeah, I mean, I just I like the UK better in a lot of ways. It's it's more it's more of a conservative country than I had anticipated. Like, I think I'm from the west coast of Canada, the the west of the west coast, Vancouver Island, where like half the people I grew up with lived on a hippie commune and were named like Coral or whatever. And so I was just I didn't. I like British people have this, it's often very lovely. It's very like polite and respectful and dignified, but it's very formal in a way that I wasn't expecting. So I used to send emails being like, Hey, thanks for this. Um, anyway, I'll see you the next. And then I get an email back being like, dear Hannah, thank you for your correspondence. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, all right, okay. This is the tone that we're taking here. Um, but yeah, no, Canada in so many ways is such a weird failed project of a country. I just think that a lot, it's becoming really um, difficult for people with like politically dissident views to live there from both sides of the spectrum. Um, and I think it really changed when Trudeau came in. And I kind of remember thinking, but like, isn't he just like a liberal who's part of like the kind of international liberal consensus of things? Like, is he really all that different than a Tory or whatever, like the difference between political candidates in Canada, I'm not sure what it's like in Australia is like this much, like it's like, what kind of boutique kind of tax credit package do you want seems to be all the difference. So I thought, oh, well, he's just much the same, really. But there has been a real cultural change um, since he became Prime Minister. But, and, and I think I can say this to someone else who's in the Commonwealth. Uh, because uh, an American wouldn't understand necessarily, this guy comes across as a total wanker. He does, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, how come? Like, like I, I mean, I, I hear him talk and I go, "Well, this guy doesn't believe any of this stuff," or he just seems like a, yeah. like 
you know, it's it, none of it is earnest. So I, I'm I'm fascinated that Canada has been taken in by this. I think that for a lot of people, especially on the East Coast, he's a weird thing where he's half French, half English, half West Coast, half East Coast. He's like made in the lab, basically, to be like the perfect Canadian candidate. But you're right. Everything that he says comes across as incredibly insincere. And he is in a very entitled man who has had all kinds of finance scandals. I think I think he was properly like convicted of crimes for taking money from the Canadian taxpayer. Um, and he just, I think he represents a certain kind of left-wing Canadian nationalism though, that's like very liberal or liberal Canadian nationalism. Maybe because you're further away in Australia, you don't have quite the same problem. But Canadians have this weird liberal nationalism where they think we can't be taken over by America. They're crazy right wing, um, whatever, and we're, we're, we're superior to them and we're multilingual and we're, you know, you know, we have free health care and we're different. And I think he really represents that consensus um, in a kind of smarmy holier than thou. And I remember meeting Americans the first time I went to America and thinking, oh, these people are absolutely fine. They're like actually very nice and they're a bit too outgoing and they talk very loudly, but like, that's really not their fault. <laughs> and, you know, I think he represents that basically. And he hasn't done anything like his foreign policy all of his things are just really in line with he does these things where like oh we're going to do a grocery ta- a grocery rebate that's his like latest and greatest thing we're going to give canada canadians a $200 check to go spend on groceries as a stimulus he's kind of very band-aid liberal this is not like redistribution of wealth this is not anything particularly left wing but for whatever reason, yeah, he hits the right notes for people, I think, with this kind of we're better than the Americans. We have a multilingual guy with great hair at the head of things. Well, I, I thought the blackface thing was going to bring him down. Yeah. Which one? Wasn't there Which more one? than one? The first one or the second one, yeah. I think he's done a couple, <laughs> wasn't he? I think he has. And, and didn't he go on that? He went on that tour of India or something and he just got full oh. deck out in Bollywood, Bollywood stuff. I, I don't know if you know this, John, but but he he's before he was – Prime Minister, wasn't he a, a drama teacher in high school? He was my friend's drama teacher. <laughs> yeah. Really? Wow. Yeah. He and it was during the Iraq War. My friend Kyle Ferguson, actually, who's on Twitter, and during the Iraq War, he accused them all of being too anti-American because they were anti the Iraq War. Mm. I mean, there's lots. Hey, I'm not saying. I'm just saying there's lots of very weird things about that section in his life. Mm. Um, his roommate was convicted of pedophilia. Um, and his, his best friend at the school he worked for, which I think was Point Grey secondary in Vancouver. So, and yeah, he dropped out of like an MBA. He was like a ski instructor. He was just like a trust fund kid living his best life in the West coast. And then I think decided he wanted to be in politics at some point, but. But he's met the moment. He's a neoliberal elite who seems to have bought into what is whatever's going. So the, the, at the moment, the trendiest thing around is, I don't know that package of 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 corporate uh, work ideas, which is uh, LGBT stuff, green stuff, whatever. Take your pick, and as long as you and and this buys into this, you've spoken about this on your on your podcast a bit. As long as you buy into all of that stuff, you can slap all the stickers you want on Lockheed missiles, or and or just keep the um keep the system the same and benefit the same people like him. 
really. A hundred percent. I mean, this he he's a like just the green stuff, right? Like he's approved pipelines that have gone through British Columbia. Um, he's very much part of a government that funds the oil industry. Like the oil industry in Canada, which is our main industry, is like a taxpayer-funded project. It's not profitable in and of itself. It gets huge amounts of subsidies from the federal government to sustain itself. Um, he's not done anything on climate, but he like poses with Greta Thunberg. And it's just like that queer thing that we were talking about earlier in the show. It's like the appearance of something matters more than the, the thing itself. Um, and he does that often. He's very good with the optics. I mean, I say very good, but he just comes across so fake. I'm hundred percent with you. I don't understand how anyone believes anything that he says, but, um, and I think the India trip is funny because I think he basically got too comfortable around like South Asian Canadians. Cause there's a huge community that have been there for like two, three generations in some places and quite big supporters of the liberal party. So they go to like the festivals, the Hindu, the Sikh festivals and stuff. And so I think he thought like, I'm basically one of you. I go to all your events or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> he made a real dick of himself mm. in India. But yeah. It's the, it's the, if we can, if we can have the aesthetics of something or something appears to be something, then it is that something. Mm. Well, speaking of, uh, of things that appear to be something, you're an ad avid TikToker. So can you tell us about your experience on that platform? What are some of the videos that, that, that you've made that have had the most engagement? You know, it's interesting. Like, obviously, I think a lot of people will know me because of gender critical activism and transgenderism and stuff. But the ones that got the most traction were my ones I did on trad wife stuff. So basically, it was these women, young women, often with boyfriends and no children and no elderly parents to take care of being like, I'm a trad wife and I make bread in my dress at home and I don't work. And I just was like, well, you don't have any children. You're not married to this man. You're not taking care of elderly parents. Like the woman with blue hair who does all of those things is much more traditional than you. And I'm not exactly sure why you're promoting this as if this is like an aesthetic that anyone can reasonably achieve in our economics economic situation. Um, those, do, those do really well. Ben Shapiro um, responded to one of my TikToks saying that, and he, I was a bit worried. I was like, oh, is this going to be a takedown? And is he going to say, see, we shouldn't work with these feminists on trans. They're all really bad. And I was all worried. And I watched it and he just said, like, this woman doesn't smile enough and she's not very pretty. And I thought, oh, I'm so relieved. <laughs> <I'm> so <laughs> nothing. I'm fine Jesus. with that. But um, yeah, I think it's really interesting because for young women, uh, it's gotten so bad. There seems to be like three or four archetypes you can be. You can be like, I'm non-binary and I have blue hair and half a shaved head. And mm. this is the, the thing that I'm putting my camp in. Or you can be, I'm a right wing, traditional Catholic monarchist wow. who wants to be a serf. Or I'm like, I think another one that's kind of an in-between is like, I'm a natural granola mom hippie. It's, I think that as like, <laughs> I guess. that's a whole other subculture. So I think like a lot of young women are, I think that people really took for granted um, what we accomplished in second wave feminism and thought, you know, women can be whatever they want to be and you can enter the workforce or you cannot, or you can stay home or this is like settled ground, but Gen Z's don't see it that way at all. Everything is a debate on a podcast with an angry man, abortion, um, traditional marriage, non-traditional marriage, all of these things are now like up for grabs. So I think a lot of young women um, are really like, and I just, 
I mean, people call me a radical feminist. I like some bits of radical feminist analysis. I, I don't like others and I don't like often a lot of the conclusions they make. But some of the stuff I'm just saying is just like pure, like very normal feminism that would have been completely mainstream like 20 years ago. Like you yeah, don't have is to- Is this different from liberal, liberal feminism as we understand it now? It's a difficult question, right? And I, I don't want to get like too semantic about it. But if you think about the second wave and there was the women's movement and there was this big burst of feminist activism and thought and culture and whatever, there was feminists. And then there was the section at the kind of the fringe end that was radical feminists and lesbian separatists. And that's always how it works with political movements, right? You have the mainstream movement and then you have the radicals at the end and you have the more moderates in the middle or whatever. Um, but feminism was before kind of the sex wars of the 80s, before there was this big blowout of are we anti or pro BDSM? Are we anti or pro prostitution? There was this huge We know who won that one. Yeah. The people. They won big, bigly. They won huge. They won. <laughs> they won, took the whole pot. Like if you come out and say, uh, I don't know, I don't know about ball gags and all that stuff. People go, uh, reported you to HR. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's so nuts. No, it was a catastrophic uh, failure. And I just think like the people who were involved at the time, like Gail Rubin, um, a woman who wrote a defense of man, boy, love, and like did crazy things like carve a swastika into her lover during sex and all this, these people ended up at the top of the heap for whatever reason. But yeah, before all that happened, I think there was m mainstream feminism was anti-prostitution. Mainstream feminism was anti-pornography. Mainstream mm. feminism, was a even anti-gender identity, not that it was a huge thing at the time, but Gloria Steinem, you know, who's hardly a radical in the vein of like a Sheila Jeffries or even Andrea Dworkin or whatever, wrote against transsexualism in a book in like the 70s. Like this was very much mainstream feminism. But then the sex wars blew all this up. And the only people who kept those lines was that radical edge that of the radical feminists. So often radical feminist becomes shorthand for feminist who's against um, pornography, prostitution, surrogacy, transgenderism. But they, the only reason that they're the only people who stayed that way, that's the only reason that, 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 that's, that that's the case. Um, a lot of feminism was very much critical of these things before that. And yeah, you're right. We completely lost the sex wars. And I think um, it just became a thing of like, you're anti-sex, you're anti-man, you don't, um, you're critical of women's choices, you're into purity. And I think that was probably true. There were probably some feminists who were that way at the time, but there wasn't kind of a critical voice going, hey, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. Like there are some but, things but here. What are, what are feminists getting out of those things you just mentioned? All those, those portfolios, pr pr prostitution, pornography, BDSM surrogacy what, what are they getting getting out of it yeah i just finished reading as a marxist feminist um kasia ekis ekman a swedish marxist feminist i read her book being and being bought which was about prostitution and surrogacy and i think when this she she lays it out very well when the status quo seems so difficult and so insurmountable it's a it's much easier and it's actually very comforting to go actually the status quo is in fact very transgressive and actually the status quo is what we want 
And actually, the status quo is very deconstructive and discursively whatever. Um, so I think the with prostitution in particular, the sex industry is this huge billion dollar thing. It's actually it's very ethically complicated. Um, there are trafficked women. There are women who are in it because, you know, of psychological things. There are women that are into it because they're not necessarily poor, but they're doing it for extra money. It makes their life easier. Like it's complicated. It's really a very complicated question. Um, and rather than going through that mud and let's discuss this or whatever, it goes, actually, this is very interesting. And it's that queer thing we were talking about earlier of um, the, the, the character of someone who does something transgressive or particularly does something that's against the state, because that's a big Foucauldian thing, is that Foucault saw the state as this maniacal power that controlled everyone. And if you were doing something that was um, opposed to the state in any way, it must mean that it's revolutionary and transgressive. And as a Marxist, I would say, well, the state is a site of tension. Sometimes the state does good things. Sometimes the state does other things. Um, so it became because the prostitute or the John are breaking the law, this is actually transgressive and interesting. And it would be a very difficult thing to try and undo the sex industry or have these difficult ethical questions. So let's just say actually it's transgressive. Actually, let's just say it, actually it's wonderful. And it's also liberalism. It's like you don't want to tell people to they have to control their behavior. They have to change something about themselves or they have to have a difficult conversation. It's much easier to go, oh, well, some women want to do it and some women don't. And so we should, you know, actually maybe it's fine. And it, this is a lot. This is a lot easier to do. It represents and anything that you do with your body is every choice a woman makes is a good choice. Every walking out into the street in the middle of traffic is a liberating feminist choice. You can't question any choice any woman has about anything because actually all choices are great because we're these free floating individuals who exist in a market and make consumer choices and this sort of thing. It's very, it's liberalism basically. Mm. Well, I'm, I'm interested in, in, in surrogacy. Like I remember when it, when it first started, well, when I was first aware of it, maybe 10, 15 years ago, maybe a bit longer, it was always like, you know, this couple, they, they couldn't have kids and it was like the sister would help and be a surrogate or something. And then, and in one way you'd go, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's kind of sweet. Like they can't have kids and, you know, someone helps out and oh, isn't that great. But now all I see is like these glamour shots of two men kind of holding hands <laughs> cool. together and way in the background mm. is some woman from some foreign country who's pregnant yeah it's this really strange i don't know i don't know what to make of those those photos but i, I don't like them it does it's perturbing isn't it and you kind of think something's not right here and i'm aware of like that narrative and i remember reading similar stories or watching similar things on youtube of like a desperate like infertile couple and a woman who um, you know, doesn't mind being pregnant for them and isn't this like altruistic and like beneficial for everyone. And, and you would think, yeah, that's what could possibly be the problem if two people are consenting to do this. And I think what's troubling about it is it's the commodification of a reproductive, of a reproductive resource of, within women. It's a, it's a commodification of re a reproductive function. Um, if prostitution is the commodification of 
forgive my language, but like a vagina or an anus or a mouth or whatever, it's the commodification of a, of, of a womb and you're turning that woman and the womb is a part of the self. You are your, you are your body. Like, the, the, like, I'm not trying to be like some hardcore materialist. I know there's the mind and there's other things, but you are your body. Your self exists within your body. So it is a commodification of the self. The womb is the woman and the woman is the womb. You're, it's one big system. And it's also just a huge amount of power to have over somebody, isn't it? Um, for money. Like you hear um, about surrogates who are told what to wear, what to dress, how to dress, what to eat, what not to eat. Kim Kardashian has her surrogates live in a, like a compound where they're monitored. A lot of surrogates don't even know who they're producing a baby for. And it's because you're taking something that isn't a commodity, the human body, or shouldn't be, and you're commodifying it. So then there's the removal of the actual woman involved. Um, it sounds so exactly like um, Never Let Me Go, uh, which is that uh, Kashuo Ishigoro uh, book, but it's also the film with that, uh, Carrie Mulligan. Have you seen this? It's about clones. No, I haven't, no. But look, it's the same sort of deal. Like they're, they're, they've got a school of clones and they find out that, they're, that they are clones and, that they're, and it's not a cheap clone movie. It's actually really... Uh, deeply upsetting and they, they find out and, and that they're sort of, you know, there as backups almost and, and just, you know, for organs and stuff. Well, what, what, yeah. what are you saying about Kim Kardashian then? Maybe think of Mad Max Fury Road. There's a, a brief oh, scene. The <laughs> yes. There's a brief uh, scene where there's like this, uh, I don't know, it's like this room where all these women are just being milked like, like cows, you know. Mm. The main bad guy's got a group of women yes, that yes. Are, are forced to have babies. Mm. Yes. Like Kim Kardashian yeah. is doing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's crazy. Andrew Dworkin, the radical feminist, like, I think some people are so smart politically, they can predict the future a bit. And she, she, she talked about these reproductive brothels that will be in third world countries. And this was in like the 1960s and 70s, because it was, it's just the, the progression of the, of commodifying and like the term is really reifying and reification is when you take something that's not an object or not a thing, usually a part of a person, and you make it a thing. It's a thingification. And because women, like reproduction is very, very powerful. It's, it's labor power. It's um, who's going to have the next generation. It's who's going to inherit my property. It's who's going to be in charge of my capital or whatever. It's very tempting for people to want to to control that resource and look like people say oh but that's not like an infertile couple that's not what they're doing and of, of course not but often i mean i don't know if this is true and i don't want to be unfair to men but apparently it's often women who would say that they're perfectly happy adopting a child and it's the man who's kind of like no i want like it's something that has a genetic link to me i'm not sure if that's because women actually give birth so they have that connection they're with the child and for men, the biological connection matters more or whatever it is. Um, but yeah, surrogacy, it's part of a broader trend really of, of prostitution of whatever. And it's, it's splitting, it's, it's splitting women in <clears throat> away from their bodies basically. Um, which I think is a big part of transgenderism, all of that. It's a running theme. 
Well, you brought up trans. Maybe we should talk about peak trans, which you have talked about on your uh, one of your recent episodes. Perhaps you could you could uh, tell the listeners what what is, what is peak trans. I guess peak trans is when you reach. You can kind of accept some levels of transgenderism, like oh, I'll call do the pronouns, and oh yeah, if you want to dress however, whatever. But then you reach a peak where you think, oh no, I can no longer take this. This is this is too much for me. Um, and I think that's peak trans. I think my peak trans basically was realizing that a lot of people calling themselves transgender were straight. I think I said this in my podcast that I thought most transgender people were like really, really, really gender non-conforming gay people. And that we would just think, oh, wouldn't it be kind of a nice thing to humor those people and pretend they're the opposite sex if it makes them feel better. And I think for me, peak trans was the trans lesbian thing. I was like, okay. Well, none of this is real then. In your <laughs> Actually, experience, are, are the because we talk about the trans rights activists a lot because they are dominating everything, I think. But in terms of trans people, it, you know, just anecdotally, I mean, do do you think that uh, they are we're looking at tra- trans women who are, um, yeah, just gay men, like, mm-hmm. and so they're attracted to to men or what's the proportion of that at what and trans women who are what i'm thinking of which is the you know the anime loving kink machine who loves who wants lesbians the cotton ceiling all that stuff i think it probably is more of the anime you know um stripey socks skirt go poorly (laughs) (laughs) i think there's just proportionally more straight men to gay men um, and I think that it, there's, been, you know what I mean? And yes. I think it was Helen Joyce who said that she thinks probably about two to 5% of men have some level of cross dressing fetish from pornography or whatever. So I think then there'll probably be a smaller proportion of those who go the full hog and pretend to be women. But yeah, I think that it's definitely, and, but, you know, I think statistically the biggest proportion of people calling themselves trans are women. It's uh, like gender non-conforming women on testosterone are the overwhelming majority, really. And, and that makes sense. You know, if you, if we live in a, we live in a social context, that's really like um, challenging for gender non-conforming women. And um, testosterone actually can make women appear like men to a reasonable degree of certainty for some people and um it makes a lot of and women are more concerned with their bodies how they look not their faults the bodies of their site of their oppression there's a lot more alienation women experience from their bodies so doing something drastic to your body like that for a woman is probably um probably more palatable than it is for a man so um and yeah i think yeah, I think that the homosexual, transsexual men um, who get into this, I, I think I do, I do often, I, I have more sympathy for those, for those types as I don't think they should be in women's spaces. And I think they're wrong and the rest of it. And I wouldn't want, unfortunately, because we've seen how it, how it's panned out, I couldn't ever accept them in, as a woman in any kind of way. But I do, I think that was my thinking when I was younger of like, oh, we've all met like a little boy who's just like really flamboyant and effeminate. And we all kind of go, oh, that one's going to be gay when they're older. I think we all know a kid like that. And I just kind of thought, well, 
I guess if it's so extreme, maybe this would be better for them or something. You know, do you think the kind of a brand of radicalism that we see today, you know, the trans thing or or even some environmental things like Just Stop Oil, et cetera, is, is being driven by well-off kids, middle class, as they, as they say in the UK? Yes, I do. I do think that. I mean, I think there, I think that Jen touched about it, touched on it on your podcast, which is that if you come from a context that's like overwhelmingly white, like just like, despite what Netflix shows portray, like most people are friends with people within their own racial group. I think the UK is like 90% white. I don't know what it is in Australia. I'm sure it's majority. Something, something equally disgusting. Mm. Yeah, something horrible. I think Canada is less than because um, we have a lot of immigration from like South Asia and East Asia. Uh, I think it's like 70 or something. But most people live in like really racially segregated existence, not because they're Ku Klux Klan members, but that's just like demographically how things work often. And if you have all this kind of opportunity and um, experiences that are diff so different to people that you claim to be like caping for and claim to be on the side of, and it's all along these identity lines and no one talks about class at all, I think that it's possible. I'm thinking of, there's a weird genre of woman and I don't know what it is or why, but in the UK with the, with the um, environmental stuff and with the trans stuff, lesbian white women who are in their early 20s, who are involved, who go to elite universities, who are involved in environmental activism. There's like four different interchangeable ones. And is this the one on, who was on Piers Riz, Rizzo, whatever her name is? Yeah, that one. She's one of them. And there's another one. I think there's like two more who are like very similar. <laughs> like where, where are these women Central casting. They are central casting, uh, just, yeah, middle class, um, eco-activist girl. I think that there is definitely, and I think that it's always, it's always the case that young people are radical and are into radical politics and university and stuff, but it's not always the case that that radical politics is supported by, um, you know, fortune 500 companies and is massively sponsored by the state and all these other things. And I think it is a lot of class anxiety. Like RizPosNet will go on to be like a DEI, like diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant for a Fortune 500 company. But won't she be rich and won't she live um, in Notting Hill or something? Like won't she be like someone who, like privately, yeah. those, people, those people never mention the fact that they've got, they've probably got an amazingly big kitchen that's bright white. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think she is. The Daily Mail, because British people are obsessed with class, right? It's like their favorite thing. So like the Daily Mail did um, like an expose and yeah, she went to a, like a very, very um, expensive private school. Her dad is one of these eco billionaires. That's what's crazy about the environment stuff. I'm glad you brought it up. But a lot of these people, unironically, are saying we don't want oil billionaires. Those are bad. We want our eco-billionaires that fund us, that are great. We want to switch the hegemonic power from this group of rich people to that group of rich people. I'm like, hey, maybe that, maybe your group of rich people are better, I guess. But this is hardly like radical politics. And these people who fund like Just Stop Oil and stuff go on, go on Piers Morgan and talk about how rich they are and how they want to have green industry and stuff. I'm like, you're just mm. moving it from. This is what Norman Finkelstein was saying on, 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 a, on an interview with him. He's saying that 
you know, these people don't want radical change. They don't want a restructuring of society. What they want is, is in the one, in terms of, of, of race, for example, they want in the 1%, they want the, the, or the right or the, or the upper percentile, they want the right uh, amount of diversity within that uh, section. But that's it. Yeah. They don't, they're not interested in redistribution of wealth or, or thinking about class that often goes across, you know, uh, you know, race and, 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 and gender or whatnot. That, but, so they're really interested in, in maintaining uh, the, st- the structure as it is, but just, just uh, sort of uh, putting on a light patina of, uh, of diversity. But, but then that also creates this arms race where, where everyone is, is, is desperate to be part of some sort of minority that then can be part of that 13% that makes up the 1%, you know? So, oh, if I'm a trans black lesbian woman, you know, Mm. you know, and, and I get to, you know, I'll get to be part of that, uh, that 1%, you know? Yeah. I was listening to the CBC years ago, it was CBC radio and they were talking about diversity, equity, inclusion. And it was one of these people who get like, this is an industry, right? Like someone who gets hired to hire racial minorities at companies. And she was talking about, I think it was biotech, like a science company. And she was like, oh, about, you know, we, we interview a lot of people and whatever, but like roughly the portion of people who get hired who aren't white are about 5%. Um, and not white people are 30% of Canada. So when we'll see real change, her words, 30% of the biotech industry will be not white. And I'm just thinking, is that such a flattening, um, unthinking analysis? Why is it that you know, the majority of the biotech industry is white. Like well, what has caused that? Probably. Like, <laughs> right. supremacy, that's what I, I don't know. What, what were you thinking? But, but that's what they say, I think. They say that like individual white people are discriminating on an interpersonal basis towards individual, um, you know, black or brown people. And it's like, if you think about the conditions that some of the places that black people live in, in, in the United States, like, I don't know if you've been to Washington, D.C. or um, Virginia or like Richmond. I saw Baltimore out of the window of, of the train and that's as close as I wanted to get. I looked, at, <laughs> I, I, looked I was, I was like, I was like, well, how did they even shoot the wire without, you know, getting shot? Yeah. And it's, there's no conversation about like what has created those conditions is, you know, is it really individual people being individually discriminatory is there, or is there something structural going on here? And do you think that black people living in Richmond, Virginia or in Baltimore are concerned that white people won't be their friend at the water cooler at work? Or do you think that they <laughs> there's like a, like, you know, want to address that like one in three black men go to prison? Why is that? You know, there, there are these bigger, broader questions. And if you can change interpersonal bias and a lot of the things that were the research, so-called research that was done into this unconscious bias stuff turned out to be bunk. Um, but if you can make people as individuals not bias anymore, then and every individual goes through a DEI training, then we can keep the social system we have. We don't have to address anything, but everything is better. Um, uh, and I think that, like, obviously, not to, you know, go all Lenin on you, but like, I think that the things are a bit more structural and difficult. And there's really difficult, you know, questions to be asked about the kind of 
social system we have and what causes like people to having have to immigrate from or to immigrate from the Middle East and North Africa, like what's happened in those countries in the last 20, 30 years in terms of foreign intervention? Why do we need to be at constant war? Is there something here that is about sustaining our failing economic system that needs us to like boost its gross domestic products? So, yeah. Well, we spoke yeah. to Heather McDonald recently, and, and she was saying exactly that same thing. Like we're, we're concerning ourselves with the end of the pipeline and trying to trying to shoehorn in minorities into top positions and and in in elite universities when we should be sort of focusing on, as you're saying, sort of you know the the, the early years of education and and the home and and what's what's life like it's growing up that sort of thing. And then you know, I guess in it, it could eventually you know, have, have ramifications at that end of the pipeline, you know? Yeah. It's a lot of very hard, I think probably very expensive, very unsexy work. And I think a lot of this stuff is really about, um, in terms of, um, HR, like when did HR become a friend of the revolution? Like HR was set up like around the advent of trade unionism to try and like manage, dissent from workers and to create up like a whole snitch department for workers to snitch on each other. And you have like Robin D'Angelo going in, making people cry and making workers hate each other. And you think like, who benefits from this? Why would Microsoft or Apple pay Robin D'Angelo $6,000 an hour, whatever crazy amount of money it is to come into their bourgeois institution, you know, these universities are also bourgeois institutions. Like it's, um, it certainly doesn't benefit the workers. And I'm not one of these class reductionist, class onlyist people. And I don't think racism doesn't exist. Or I think I think I agree with Stuart Hall that particularly in the United States, I think probably in ways that those of us in the UK or in the Commonwealth can't understand is like he says it's like a modality in which class is lived. I think that things are a bit more racialized in the United States. Um, I certainly think we should have those conversations and talk about race, but to get workers to hate each other, I don't think is the solution. John, you want to go? <laughs> are you sure? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> well, because I was going to ask about, uh, you know, you said about que interesting questions, and I wanted to ask about the woman question. And okay. whether you could explain the woman question. I, and again, I've mentioned Norman already tonight. But so, do the accent. I was going to say, whenever I hear the woman question, I hear it in Norman's voice. So, the woman question, you know, I got to hear it the way he said. <laughs> so what, what, what's going on here, Je uh, 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 Hannah? What's, what's the deal with the, the woman question? I think the woman question was um, people, that's how people used to speak in the 18th century when they talked about politics, they would talk about, you know, like Marx wrote on the Jewish question. Um, it was a way of addressing women's issues and the family and reproduction, basically from a Marxist point of view. And it was mostly Engels who wrote about this in um, Origin of the Family, Private Property and the State. And he also wrote about it in the conditions of the working class in England. Um, and it's a discussion of why are women oppressed? under what circumstances are they? Does it have to do with class? Does it have to do with capitalism? Does it, doesn't it? Is it pre-capitalist um, organization of things? Is it something that we can overcome? Um, how do we overcome it? I think this is, and, I, and Engels 
in so many words said that, you know, you have the control of the means of production and then you have the control of the means of reproduction and these things kind of mirror each other in like a dialectic um, and how these, these are very complex questions that are difficult. And then you get, you know, um, uh, Marxist feminists like uh, Sylvia Federici, who think like the creation of the nuclear family has to do with um, getting women into single single family homes to make that the kind of basic unit of capitalism. Like even under feudalism, there was um, more kind of diffuse family organizations. The children were left with the women for the day when the men went out and worked. There weren't these like itemized little family homes. Um, and I think that's the debates therein. But then the radical feminists go, no, it's trans historical. It's been happening since the beginning of time. And this is like a kind of, I find radical feminism on this question a bit static. They have this very like, no, this is the way it is. This is the way it always will be. And then I find some of the Marxist feminists a bit naive about male violence. Like some of them say silly things like men beat their wives because they're very sad about capitalism or whatever. And I just think that's kind of kind of dumb, but <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. I hope that's a good summary of uh, the woman question. And I don't have an answer to that. No, you don't have the woman answer. You just have the question. No. So, no I do appreciate that though. Because I always like to get, you know, a nice chunk of, of free learning from experts. And so that, that I really appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. I hope it was adequate. I did my best to summarize. <laughs> I'll also start saying on the woman question in Norman Finkelstein's voice. <laughs> <laughs> He's in my head all the time. So uh, I have another question now. So my wife attends a straight book club, okay, which is she would admit uh, more of a social thing. Now, because you guys, I think, are well across, you know, being um, uh, Marxist lesbians, uh, I feel like you you don't really understand the straight woman book club. Um, because you're more to the point, you're very academic. That's the most important thing. So this is mainly a social thing. They're not okay. covered. They're not reading Capital. They're not reading. They're not even reading David Foster Wallace or anything. It's just something that came off the shelf last week. And um, okay. they're mostly new mothers and none of them are gay, bi or queer. Um, she mentioned to her fellow women that she'd listened to a the podcast from the Free Press, which is uh, The Witch Trial of J.K. Rowling. And mm. she was taken aback by some of the pushback uh, because, you know, she's married to me and I do this podcast and she has her own ideas, but, you know, these are the, the ideas that are in the house or, 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 or uh, obviously uh, we're sympathetic to uh, JK and all that. And um, so some of the pushback, um, there was a ringleader at the book club uh, who worked for the government and another one who worked in women's magazines and not the fun ones either, not like new idea, not about Harry and Meghan and stuff. It's the bo the boring ones, like, you know like serious ones like i don't know women's health sort of ones you know um they said things like i don't want to hear jk's rationalizations and stuff like it's too late for an apology and mo most fascinatingly one of them said that censorship was good in some cases so i wanted to get your reaction to this this straight this insight into straight book club i mean what can you say it's just crazy can women enjoy a fucking book club or like <laughs> It's like romance novels without getting, I mean, I, I don't really understand it other than I think a lot of them think trans is the new gay. And 
I think regular straights like like Barack Obama was like anti-gay marriage in like 2008 right oh, yeah, like yeah. A, lot of, a lot of people have had an evolution of ideas on on gay rights within their lifetime probably relatively recently mm. which is fair and happens to people and if you're not gay like I wouldn't expect anything different um, but I think they have this, I think it's a bit of a complex of like, I won't be on the wrong side of history again, because there's this weird shame about it. Mm. Or I just think like, you know, things have changed. If you're straight and live with, around straight people and are not part of that scene, then you wouldn't have known. And it's fine to change your mind. But I don't think they see it that way. I think they see it as like a moral failing. And so then there's this panic of like, I can't, you know, morally fail again. Um, so and so, so it, tonight at book club is the night. This is, this is our independence day. Okay. <laughs> you know? And you well, I just, I don't know. I'm, t I'm, I get less, um, I would just be like, well, if, I don't know, if you think that men can be women, like, are you, are you well? Like how, in what, like in what sense can men be women? Like no one's denying that there are gender non-conforming people, but like well, literally a woman, actually a woman, like you and I are women, mm. like how? But when there's no men around, can't you also just say a bit, like look at each other and go, come on, drop the shit. Like, you know, we both know, like if there was a dude here, we know, we both know we wouldn't, and he was, you know, like there's that horrible story that Jen told in one of the recent episodes where there's a guy who came down, he had his fly undone or something and made some sexual comment like, you know, like, oh, better, better for easy access or some, something like that, right? And like that's, that's, that's very male and very bang out of order, okay? And couldn't, as women, couldn't you just be like, we, we don't want that, right? We don't want all that. No. no. Women, how do I put this? think a lot of how we socialize girls has to do with being a good girl if you if you if you're not gonna say anything nice don't say it at all and I think a lot of women are doing a who's the nicest person in the room audition with each other quite often and it's a way if men from what I understand gain like kind of social capital by this is how much money I make and this is my I wouldn't know anything about that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever kind of phallic thing that it is, women gain social capital by being like, I'm the nicest, I'm the kindest, I'm the most whatever. But but, but they're also the most horrible to each other though. Like yeah, any anyone that dissents <laughs> anyone that dissents is absolutely destroyed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like wretched, like terrible. But because a lot of women feel like they can't be again, not their fault, not naturally this way, don't come down my throat, but can't be aggressive, aggressive, can't be assertive, can't just be like, hey, let's cut the shit. It becomes these kind of sideways reach, ways to reach aggression. I think Jordan Peterson talks about this in a different way than I would, but how everyone has, everyone has aggression. They do. Your, your greatest countryman, JP. <laughs> people tell me, I mean, I don't think I sound that bad today. It depends on who, where I've been around, but people tell so they me say I have You sound like Jordan Peterson. Yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> you got to be higher. Yeah, you got to be higher, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got to be up here and like the thing. have a lower voice than Jordan Peterson. <laughs> no, it's people ask me when they find That's out. It's not hard though. That's not hard. He's got a very high-pitched voice. He, he has a very high-pitched voice and it's this thing where you're just very monotone and you kind of go through the whole thing because we also speak French, so you got to go, no, 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 no. Yeah, I am. Um, 
sometimes people tell people I'm Canadian, they ask me, what do you think of Jordan Peterson? And actually, I, I think he has some good psychological advice. I think he's quite stupid on politics and kind of diverts to this. It's the cultural Marxist thing, which I think is very silly, but he, I think he has some good psychological insights and he's right. And I, I think this is not a Jordan Peterson exclusive. I think most people who know anything about psychology know this is everyone has aggression. It's how, where you put your aggression. And if you can't see where people are putting their aggression in their lives, it's because they're hiding it and doing it in kind of weird ways. And you actually should be more wary of the people who aren't showing you their aggression because it means that somewhere that you can't detect. And yeah, I don't know. I'm pretty useless at like women interpersonal dynamics, especially among straight women. I have to be honest. Most of my friends are like- Do you get along with straight women? I do. I have to say though, a lot of my straight women friends are autistic. <laughs> I don't know what that's about. You've got to die. <laughs> Jen and I have like a group of friends who are lesbians and autistic straight women oh. who are like, like cats. I don't really know what that is. But I do, I get along. I think I get along better with straight women than gay men. And sometimes mm. it's, it is hard in those dynamics because it becomes like, um, you you know who's the most pure or whatever and it depends on to what extent your wife wants to blow up the book club like do you want to like mm. go out in a blaze or do you mm. want to like try and preserve the relationship because we don't know many people in sydney i think we're going to hang on to it mm. well I, I i have a suggestion for your wife i think she should pay this ringleader a compliment by comparing her to dylan mulvaney she could go oh you oh you look so stunning tonight just like a young dylan mulvaney How do you yeah think go down? do you think that would work uh, Hannah, or no? It could. I mean, it is very aggressive. That's a very aggressive thing. <laughs> to be honest, this is the one kind of because I have this insight into, about women in this way, you can sometimes out emotionally manipulate them in a way that is so extreme that you make them shut the fuck up forever. And you can like sometimes I'll say like, well, I guess women who have been raped, incested and battered should be forced to be around men that they don't want to be around at rape crisis shelters. That sounds very compassionate. You're right. And because you out emotionally manipulated them in that direction. I mean, it's true, but it's also because it's like a bigger mm. card. You're not being empathetic enough. Sometimes it makes them shut up. Or maybe you could say something like, you know, Joe Rowling was a you know battered by her husband she's had a very difficult time with men in her life maybe for her having a woman only space would be quite important and sometimes when you when you tell the truth in that direction it makes women shut up about it but but do you think the money the, the money sort of squashes that though because they just go oh well she's so rich she could just like she could just have her own rape crisis center in her mansion somewhere well, then I would say she wasn't always rich. Sure. She, you know, she was on benefits writing Harry Potter and a Starbucks, and she probably could have very much used a woman's shelter, which is probably why she has empathy for women who do. My, my wife did have a wonderful response to, the, to one of the things. When she said, one of the one of the ladies said, well, it's too late for an apology or something. And my wife said, oh, she's not apologizing. She's not, she's quite yeah. unrepentant, actually. <laughs> yeah. Quite unrepentant of, she, so, and I, I really like that because, you know, if you're in, if you're reading off the off the song sheet, you, you with that response, you're like, wait a minute, no, no, this is not how it's meant to go. You're meant to go, you're meant to suddenly crumble, and then you you apologize, and then I fire you anyway, like, or I kick you out. Like, what are you saying? She's not a, apologizing. Like that would have really uh, interrupted things. I think the other thing is rather because I think people tend to be mealy mouthed and overspeak. 
And sometimes if you go, no, I actually just disagree with that completely and just stop talking. <laughs> be like, no, I think that's wrong. Sit in it. Yeah. <laughs> and you're like, now it's on you. So <laughs> that's very disagreeable and very, I don't know. I tell my I wife you should be more disagreeable. I get that from your mate JP too. Yeah, so. that's true. I mean, it's hard for women to be disagreeable. I think this is, I think I'm more disagreeable than most women. In fact, I do know that I am because often they find me too disagreeable, but less disagreeable than most men. I think I'm kind of in the maybe men's side of the center, but I, I can be quite a lot of women. This is why I think I attract autistic women. For whatever <laughs> collect them as friends yeah <laughs> they, they <laughs> they're all like the the detectives in, in those scandy type shows the, those autistic women you know that we, yeah you know, yeah they, a lot you know beautiful jumpers misunderstood exactly. i mean because they don't get a lot of the female socialization because of autism so they don't have the agreeability thing so they're just like oh yeah i guess yeah sure that's okay <laughs> <That's kind> of, <laughs> I appreciate that. So, yeah. Well, I think I think maybe there's a sitcom in this in this John. You know, book club. There's something in there. You know, Let something something office like. You know. Yeah. It could be like a. I don't know if I'm just thinking this because I'm watching a lot of horror movies, but it could be. You know, there's. I think his name is Imbira Buraku. He wrote a play called The Dutchman, and it's like a black man and a white woman in a subway and the whole play happens in a subway and she like hits on him and he hits back. And then, and then she says like, Oh, but I could maybe say that you're trying to rape me. And he says, why would you do that? And it like escalates and escalates until the tension at the end where I think that she slits his throat or something. It's a very dramatic play. Anyway, wow. you could do something like that, but with straight woman book club where <laughs> <laughs> you're all, you're at a play and you're in a room and the tension gets to yes. such a point. Mm. you know everyone's sniping at each other and it just builds to the point where it seems natural that someone spills blood yeah like a jordan mm. peele film mm. i like this Sorry. yeah very good screenplay idea please don't tell your wife that was <laughs> she's gonna listen to this episode she only listens to oh. some of them and this is one she's gonna listen to because she likes okay. you guys so it's too late. Yeah, I would say emotionally blackmail is one way to do it or just be very deadpan and go, well, I actually disagree with that. I don't okay. think hmm. you should have to apologize. And I think it's often good to say less rather than more. And if you can make it an uncomfortable enough experience that they don't want to talk about it anymore and they realize the emotional blackmail is not working, maybe they'll move on. Well, with the uh, short amount of time we still have here, Hannah, maybe we should talk about your podcast, Red Fam, which is uh, is going very well and it's very popular. We, we we're fans; we tune in. So, uh, what, what are you up to? How many how many episodes have you done? Twenty, thirty, something like that. Jen's gonna kill me. I don't know how many episodes we've done. <laughs> I think, it's I think 30. it is. Yeah, I think it's thirty. Like yeah. yeah, no, it's going really well. I'm really I'm really pleased with it. I think that when you're a gender critical Marxist lesbian who, you know, whatever is like kind of critical of identity politics, but not people can be quite confused by you. Um, so I think it's, uh, podcasts are great because you get long form discussion. And I think dialectic and discussion is often how people form their ideas um, with having either conversations with themselves or conversations with others. So you really get to kind of given the space to, 
to say really what you want to say um, and really say what your politics are. And I quite like it because we can like bounce ideas off of each other and disagree and come to conclusions and people kind of know where we're at. Cause I think we were quite confusing for a lot of people. And now I think more people understand our perspective. So I, I think that, I think that confusing element is, is kind of part of the charm. Like you're trying to work it out. Like, Mm. I think that's part of the appeal. Yeah, I think so too. I think, I think for a lot of people, um, especially Americans, I'm not sure about what it's like in Australia, but it's very blue versus red, liberal versus conservative. And I used to, I don't know if it bothered me, but I used to not particularly like being mixed up with a conservative woman. Um, cause Americans just see like, they'll scroll by a TikTok and be like, Oh, a conservative. Um, and it, but it's really just because that's the only mode that they see politics through is, and I think that part of this identity politics stuff is kind of like a, a um, export, like exporting this kind of very dualistic red versus blue politics mm. to the rest of the world's woke, not woke, right? Where often things are a lot more complicated and we all go on evolutions of our ideas. And most people have a mix of left-wing and right-wing ideas actually like not many people are pure ideological subjects in a particular way so i'm keen to start some beef what what do you and jen disagree on oh what did me and jen disagree on you know we were just talking about this the other day thinking we need to have like a debate episode <laughs> i think that, like because we need to like show that women can disagree with each other i think that but you know i'm, I'm kind of changing her uh, i think that if between like the marxist versus radical feminist kind of line I think that I'm more of the like I, I appreciate a lot more of the Marxist feminism than Jen does um, but Jen I think as she mentioned your podcast was kind of around a lot of really radical lesbian separatists for a while and I think that really affected her thinking so I think part of that is we disagree about whether or not reproduction is work in a sense mm. um, I wouldn't say that it's work like building a wall is work but I would say um, it serves a special function in capitalism and that it produces labor, it produces labor power. Um, and I think there is a specific kind of um, misogyny or male dominance or whatever that comes about in a capitalist context. I think that's something we disagree on. Um, I think in terms of like nerdy in the woods Marxist stuff, I think though I've changed her mind a lot, I think Jen, was more Trotskyist and I was much less Trotskyist and I've changed her opinion on some things of like socialism in one country versus international revolution. And yeah, I'm trying to think of, Jen and I agree on a lot, I'm trying to think of what else we would, we would disagree on. I think, I think that I'm, yeah, I think Jen is more like, we often get into a conversation about, if we established communism, how we would manage bureaucracy. And I think I'm just a bit more of like an orthodox Marxist where I'm like, well, the utopian society is not perfect and I'd rather have, is not possible. And I'd rather have like a bureaucratic kind of state than have capitalism. And she's more bothered by this. And she tried to get me to watch that film Leviathan about, um, That's the uh, ocean one, that one. Uh, it's a film about a man in the Soviet Union and the state wants his house to build something and he refuses to move. And it's about how he like um, 
confronts the bureaucracy of the Soviet Union. And I just wow. said, I'm not watching that capitalist, imperial <laughs> shite make me. Um, so I think, yeah, I think I'm probably maybe more of an orthodox communist than she is. Mm. Uh, I think that would probably be our differences. And thank you for making me think about this because we wanted to do a debate episode. And mm. yeah, I just think like, well, we're not going to create a utopia and I think like Cuba has done a pretty good job in managing this stuff. And I think that this is all kind of pumped up by like kind of anti-communist um, concerns from the Cold War. And I'm not really sure why we have to think about it too much. Um, so, yeah, that's I would say is like a, a point of disagreement. All right. Well, I hope you haven't started uh, too much of a rift, but uh, I, I would say I, I feel like we could talk for so much longer. We, we don't yeah. have any more time. We could talk forever. Yeah. Uh, so obviously I have to have you come back unless you, you were just being agreeable and you felt aggressed this whole time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then, uh, we always have a, a, our final question uh, uh, we ask everyone is we'd like to know what you're reading right now. I am reading, um, this is embarrassing, but German Greer, The Female Eunuch. I've been reading it for a long time because it's 350 some pages long. And I read two books whilst reading that one. I've read um, Kasia Ekes Ekman's Being and Being Bought, and I read a Chris Hedges book at the same time, but I'm still reading German Greer, The Female Eunuch, because she goes on about it, goes on about Shakespeare about in it for about 50 pages, and it was just mind-numbing, and I had to really force myself to get through it because I had to say that I'd finished this book. Well, I was struck as well by, it's one of those books that, that uh, sort of fits into, I, I wasn't ready for it to be, um, akin to literary criticism for yeah. huge sections because and that's the tra tradition it's coming from a bit in the way that sort of freud has been you know uh subsumed into literary criticism like jermaine right. greer's book has got the, those roots as well and um i was really surprised by um so i think she's brilliant and she was a big hero of, of my mum's and so she was like you know just around but her books are in her house and stuff and like uh I was surprised at her her very Australian use of the C word, like just loving it, like you know, <laughs> whipping that up. That's our. That's like our. Yeah, that means we're mates. It's, it, yeah, it's a greeting. It's a form of endearment. It's it a is. term of endearment in Australia. So I mean, it is a bit here in the UK, not to the same extent. And it was so shocking to me as like a nice Canadian. I was like, "What are people <laughs> saying? This is incredible." But yeah, no, I think that she's a woman who is so herself. Like she is just so unapologetically herself. And as, sometimes, as I was reading the book, I was thinking, "How did she get this published?" I bet they tried to edit tried to edit it on her and she just said absolutely not like you can't you're not allowed because she really allows herself to go to every extent that she can and and i yeah she's just someone who's completely herself in every way and i really really appreciate that about her and, and i really and, do like and that's why um you know i got my dream would be to have her on the show i just don't know how to get to her like she is a a a, a, a total hero and and now that we're seeing re seeing those videos from 10 years ago resurface mm -hmm. of her being the canary in the coal mine and getting cancelled and getting stuff taken away from her, this woman who did, I don't care what people think of the particulars, the stuff she did for, for second wave feminism is is not up for debate. In fact, fuck no. you if you think she didn't do anything. Like, you know what I mean? I got no other way to say it. Like, incredible contribution and, and, and change 
a lot of people's women's lives. And um, and what do we do? We, 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 where were we when, when they took everything away? You know, I mean, she would say, I don't care. Uh, you know, I've got everything I want. So that's exactly what she would say, you know. But but honestly, she should be, um, you know, where, where, where where's her uh, statues, you know? And and, uh, and so, yeah, I don't know. I just but where's that, her um, Bud, Light, Bud Light can? <laughs> where's her contract, you know? <laughs> I'm, trying, I'm trying to think, could I, do I know someone who knows someone who can get you Jermaine Greer? Oh, I might put the word out you know put the word out there she's such a singular woman in the last thing I saw about her was saying she was married to the rainforest (laughs) she just loved (laughs) she doesn't care I don't think she like is the kind of person who needs very many people around her but like yeah I'm trying to well, think. Maybe. Well, John, you know, we, we've interviewed Michael Lunig. He's a he's a cartoonist from Australia, and and he knows her. I think. Does he? I think he does. Yeah. Oh. Now we're thinking. Okay. All right. Everyone who's listening, get Jermaine Greer on the New Flesh podcast, and if you know, or at least send nasty emails to Hannah and Jen and say, "Why haven't you got to help? You know, help out? <laughs> like, you know, at least do that. I don't know. Yeah, we have to. We have to get. Have to get Jermaine. I have to get Jermaine on to more things, but I think, yeah, she's written. She wrote a new book. I think it's called On Rape. Yes. Yeah. Mass- <laughs> massive title, massive content. I mean, yeah. what a great intellectual, like like someone who's dangerous and, you know, the people used, we used to invite to writers festivals and say, oh, what? that's an interesting idea. Mm. Now, now we uninvite them. We uninvite them as, they, as we did to her, you know? So, yeah. I just love watching clips from her from like the seventies and eighties, just like tearing a strip off men just in such a complete way where she just like so intellectually dominates them. And there are men who aren't used to that at all. And Have you seen town and- bloody hall? No. What's That's that? a documentary she yeah. did uh, with, it's a debate that wonderful. It's a, this is an era we're just fascinated by. It's her debating Norman Mailer. So the ultimate, you know, uh, male narcissist and her and a range of other feminists. And, um, and all the women in the room, what's missing, as we've talked about before, is the is the humor. Like, you know, the struggle is there, so because the issues are real, but between even between Norman and 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 the feminists, there's a humor and the audience is laughing, they're barbing, and there's that's missing, this that sort of interplay, you know? Yeah, I think people used to be able to have intellectual conversations. Like people used to be able to talk to people they disagree with and have and not in a liberal like let's compromise and get along kind of way like people who were like uncompromising in what they thought but people could have discussions um and debates and whatever and now if you just what's that podcast all the gen z's like whatever or oh, whatever this is this is um, the guy who roasts hot young things yes, and just says yeah. you know tells them why they're wrong yeah exactly and then sometimes they'll have that destiny on who's like a liberal a who's guy. like yeah who will go on and then they're just screaming at each other and you're thinking like oh god like this is i don't want anything to do with this like world like I don't want <laughs> no it's a nightmare I mean, yeah terrible it's nasty, mm. no, nasty. And, it, and it becomes a lifestyle too you know it does this is what i hear the streaming thing and i just i thought about it for a while because i was like oh lots of people watch politics on twitch and then i just tweeted do, do any women watch twitch and i got like 25 replies going no yeah, no. but because if you want to Twitch, how long would it be before someone said nudes? <laughs> yes. Exactly. Nudes. That's that it's like 99% male. Women like Instagram, and I just, I don't know how to, I don't 
Jen likes Instagram. I can't make myself use a uh, TikTok is the compromise TikTok and Twitter. So mm. yeah, Twitch is probably not happening. So is that where people can find you uh, on Twitter? What, what, what's your Twitter yeah, handle? So it's really H-A-N-N-A-H-B-E-R-R-E-L-L-I, funny Italian surname. And uh, that's me on, I think I'm like Hannah Borelli 2 on um, TikTok because I've gotten my account deleted several times. I've had various combinations of numbers, but I'm sure if you were to search Hannah Borelli, and I've had this account for about six months, which is great. So you're on a streak. Let's see if I can keep it a while longer. And thank you so much for having me on. This was great. No, it's it's a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. And uh, yeah, can't wait for the next episode uh, of Red Pen. Yes, I think we're going to go try to organize to record that now, actually. Oh, good. <laughs> You're warmed up so. then. <laughs> we're warmed up. Exactly. Exactly. Thanks, Anna. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the New Flesh Podcast. If you like our work, please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or even writing us a review. It really does help the show reach a wider audience. We'll be back with another episode next week. Until then, long live the New Flesh.